As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs, but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today's guest is Simeon Schnapper. He is the uh, co-founder and director of the JLS Fund, which is one of the more significant investment funds uh, placing bets, basically, and learning the whole field of psychedelics innovation and psychedelics business. I should say, I just met Simeon, and interestingly enough, through another guest of Psychoactive, it was Leonard Picard, who some of you may have listened to. He was in town. Uh, we were getting to know one another. And then he brings me over to meet his buddy, Simeon Schnapper, and we hit it off. And so, full disclosure, uh, you know, after hitting it off, he asked me to be an advisor to this fund. So I had a, you know, full disclosure, I'm an advisor to Simeon's JLS fund. And one of the, one of the implications of that is that if it does well, I'll make some money as a result. Um, but also as a result, I've enjoyed getting to know him and really coming to appreciate the extent to which he is respected, admired, and liked in this psychedelics area. And he's also one of the people on the investment side who's been involved in this space, not just investment, but psychedelics, for quite a long time. So, Simeon, 
welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ethan. <laughs> well, you know, we we recently uh, crossed paths at uh, this wonderful conference in New York called the Horizons Conference. I mean, actually, the month before that, we were down in Miami at the Miami Wonderland Conference on right. psychedelic yeah. medicine and business, which was a more heavily business one. Horizons goes back, you know, 14 years. I think I spoke at the first one of their conferences in New York back in 2007, but it's really growing in leaps and bounds, and there was this incredible energy going on, and, and there is truly a psychedelic renaissance underway right now. And why do you think it's happening now? Um, There's so many ways to answer it, but the default is kind of the conflation of, you know, three major things happening. You have, you know, regulatory stuff from the FDA with breakthrough designation. You have the decriminalization of psychedelics and or even the legalization. You have a velocity of research coming out of universities, et cetera, et cetera. And this is all being powered, fueled by, you know, what we call generating alpha, which is money and the energy of money. So it's really this perfect fire that's, in our opinion, creating this renaissance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've mentioned on Psychoactive many times my friend Rick Doblin, who founded MAPS back in the mid-1980s and has just been the trooper building this thing in an incredible way. And for so long, it was all about philanthropic contributions, just as I you know, rely on philanthropic contributions to build Drug Policy Alliance and, uh, you know, and run the ballot initiatives and all that sort of stuff. But now there's this remarkable infusion of funding, I think more a lot on the philanthropic side, but that's now... I think, being sort of dwarfed on the investment side. Yes, uh, it is. And it's it's very delicate, too. I mean, there's the pure play, you know, venture capitalists or private equity or just investor on the money side. And then there's how do you invest into psychedelics? But for me, it's always been this interesting dance between the drug world and the uh, the energy in the world of money. Uh-huh. I can imagine it's a fascinating world. I mean, right now I see there's some companies that have gone public that are, have billion-dollar valuations on the market. Are we going to see many more companies going that way and many more billion-dollar billion valuations? Uh, easily. I think you're going to see a lot of news in you know, this first quarter of 2022. You're also going to see a shift probably from mental health to you know everything in central nervous system and anything that's inflammation from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's, uh, et cetera. But for right now, you're definitely seeing a bunch of companies going public and attaining, you know, what people call the, you know, unicorn status, that billion dollar plus valuation on senior exchanges. For me, it's, you know, it's exciting. It's to some extent something I've been waiting for for, you know, a few decades. I've always loved starting something new and I've always loved if done intelligently and done ethically, how provocative and important money could be to help move the needle. And then, of course, I've always loved the substances. So it's an exciting time for this all to be uh, kind of colliding, if you will. Yeah. Well, let's break it down for our audience then. So, I mean, there was MAPS that was out there first, a real true pioneer, Rick Doblin and his colleagues, raising tens of millions of dollars to move forward with studies on using MDMA, aka Mm -hmm. ecstasy, to treat PTSD. And they've been moving that process through the FDA for many years. And there is a possibility, they think it's quite likely, in fact, that the FDA will give a green light uh, uh, two years from now Mm -hmm. for this to be basically allowed for doctors to prescribe 
tribe. Um, but Maps was always involved in, you know, doing everything from th- philanthropists. And now they've created a public benefit corporation, basically mm-hmm. a for-profit corporation owned by the nonprofit organization. They've just made a deal with a, you know, a major investor mm-hmm. of, I think, $70 million to help finish this off. Um, so, I, you know, and I know Rick Doblin has been worried about the, the role of money emerging too quickly in this space, but he also sees it as essential do you have worries? Uh, I think worry would be too strong, but concern, I could, you know, to some great extent, empathize, though, with Rick, right? I mean, there was all this progress for decades, purely philanthropically, um, and then something shifted, you know, about three years ago with the kind of this opening of, wait, these are really important molecules, and there's really important science going on, and is this a capital markets opportunity? So I could definitely empathize with Rick and others who've done such an amazing job of raising capital or getting the donors to get MDMA where it is, but there's a lot of other molecules and other indications. And, you know, I think it just kind of got to this point where it's like, okay, maybe we can do something unique yeah, you know, I mean, I can't, you know, Rick talks about having, in some respects, been a victim of his own success in raising so much money, moving this thing forward. And I can relate because, you know, forever and ever in raising the money uh, to legalize marijuana, first for medical purposes and then more broadly, it was entirely grounded in philanthropic contributions. And even in the last few years I was doing this in 2014, 15, 16, even when I could raise a little bit of money from folks in the marijuana industry, you know, it was always clear I would talk to those guys because they were stakeholders. But I would never try to raise money from them until after we had drafted the ballot initiatives. We didn't want them to have undue influence over it. And then once we won the California initiative in 2016, everybody saw it was like game over. Marijuana is going to be legalized across the country. Uh, And at that point, basically, many of the philanthropists were saying, Ethan, at this point, rely on the for-profit guys. I've been giving you the money and getting my tax deductions, or they couldn't get tax deductions for the ballot initiatives, but I've been doing it philanthropically. It doesn't really make any sense anymore. So I think Rick sometimes now finds himself competing, right, to get philanthropic contributions when many of the rich guys who want to put this money in are saying, let me just invest the whole thing, you know, for profit. Why give away money when I could be just, you know, getting a return on my investment very directly? It's a really difficult argument to win sometimes. And, you know, uh, Maps and Rick is one of uh, several in this space who, you know, I've all either worked with personally or have known over the years. And I was way off, like, you know, two, two and a half years ago, when we started, you know, quote unquote, deploying capital in the space, I thought this is going to really benefit the nonprofits too. And I just, I totally missed that because then I sat down with, you know, to your whole point, people who had been donors in the space for a long time. And I'm talking to them about our fund and ROIs and, you know, quote unquote, making money as well as doing good. And a lot of them were like, well, wait a minute, if I'm investing and it's going to be the same outcome, why wouldn't I invest and get a return, which I could donate to another industry or another area that isn't that far along um, in integrating capital markets to solve a big problem? So it was a big like 
Like, ah, really? Yeah, I mean, you see all these universities now popping up with research institutes, right? Or, you know, or hospitals. NYU Langone in New York, yeah. uh, Johns Hopkins, University of California, Imperial College in London. Uh, you know, I know there's programs at what, Harvard and Yale and uh, just more and more popping up either into, you know, a few, a few researchers or sometimes entire projects. Uh, are those being funded purely philanthropically or is it a mixed investment where the investors are going to have some uh, profit? ability to be made from those investments? Yeah, it's definitely more of the latter. And each of the ones you mentioned are unique in how they're structuring. I've uh, definitely had the opportunity to participate on drafting of several, and I've kind of watched certain ones evolve over the years. But generally, um, the bigger ones are contemplating an interdisciplinary approach where they're accessing everything the universities have to offer. So it's not just the chemistry, it's the political science, it's the anthropology, it's the math, it's the academic computing. So that benefits them from recruiting new students. Two, just on the science side and the research side, there's always been IP and licensing deals out of universities. That's why some universities, I mean, if you really dig into the balance sheets, have these endowments that are massive. And a lot of those endowments was not just alumni donations or, you know, they had antiquities from some bygone era that appreciated in value, but it was some of the deals that flowed into the university um, from various departments that had either had royalties or IP assignments with royalties, et cetera. So I'm watching a whole mess of universities and colleges kind of look at this and say, wait, if A, B, and C are doing it, why aren't we setting up a psychedelic institute? And I had a call from a provost even a month ago, and this is from a community college. They don't even have a chemistry and research department. And he's like, hey, what do you know about this uh, this uh, institute uh, thing? Uh, should we do one of those? And I'm like, <laughs> and I just was like, what is happening? Well, I mean, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Rick called me last year, a year and a half ago, and he wanted me to introduce him to Kurt Schmoke. Now, Kurt Schmoke was the mayor of Baltimore in the late 80s, uh, and he was the one who surprised everybody by calling for a major reconsideration of the drug war and drug prohibition at the same time that I was a young assistant professor at Princeton making similar arguments. And he and I became the kind of, you know, the, the Baltimore mayor and the Princeton professor making these <laughs> arguments. And then he moved on from being mayor. You know, he became the provost, I think, at Howard University. And now he's the president of the University of Baltimore, which has been basically the City College of Baltimore. And Rick wanted to meet him because the guy who founded GoDaddy, he actually was interested in the issue of veterans and veterans' mental health and psychedelics research and MDMA. And he, I think, was one of the biggest donors of University of Baltimore. And so it was all about seeing whether this local college, University of Baltimore, could begin to have a little psychedelics, you know, uh, research component to it. So I think you're exactly right. It's not just the major institutions. You know, it's a whole bunch of others. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. 
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Now, let's just step back for a second. You know, a lot of the focus right now is on MDMA getting approved with MAPS effort by the FDA. And the other one that everybody talks about is this company called Compass, uh, started by the Goldsmiths, um, which also now has a billion-dollar-plus valuation in the markets, which is looking at psilocybin, I think, to treat depression, right? And that's the other one that people are optimistic will be approved by the FDA in coming years. And so what else is on the horizon in terms of potential treatments or companies that look to be third, fourth, and fifth in this place? Or is that the $64,000 question for you as an investor in all of this? Yeah, I would say it's a $63,000 question because there's no <laughs> – it's not a matter of um, of if, uh, you know, from our thesis. It's a matter of when. So whether it's – if we're just talking at the molecular level, you know, MDMA versus psilocybin versus 5-MeO-DMT versus LSD, there's so many studies happening right now and there's so much promise that it's really going to be based on the team's that are able to execute faster. Just to back up for a second, so for our listeners, when Simeon's referring to a psilocybin, he's talking about the key ingredient in mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. And when he's talking about 5-MeO-DMT, that's something that's oftentimes associated with the toad from the Sonoran Desert, um, uh, but also can be produced synthetically, as can be mescaline, uh, which is a key ingredient in peyote or in San Pedro. So those are the substances we're talking about. But just to stick for a moment, Simeon, on on this research FDA route, um, do you, I mean, if you had a bet, like are what are going to be the next substances or molecules for which types of mental health conditions? You have the molecule, the indication, and where they're at on the FDA path. So MDMA is tied right now to the indication of post-traumatic stress disorder, And that's very close to being approved, right? It's in its second clinical trial, Mm -hmm. phase three. You have 
psilocybin or the mushroom, you would reference compass in a phase two around the indication of treatment-resistant depression. So something might not go through. There's a lot of drugs that, you know, don't even get to a phase one that are preclinical. There's drugs that get to phase two and then and then fail. Um, so it's not a hundred percent indicative, but uh, it's a good it's a good guess. It's a good barometer. So when MDMA gets approved for treating PTSD, at that point, it may have a more rapid progress in terms of being used to treat other medical conditions, whether it's an eating disorder or whether it's a range of other things. And ditto for psilocybin, which Compass is moving forward with now, right? So you have those sorts of things. Then you have, you know, the question about whether something like LSD, which I understand a lot of researchers don't do as much with, in part because it's a much longer experience and therefore the time of the therapist, you know, is, you know, that costs a lot more. And because LSD still has a negative association in the public and the political mind, um, that mescaline's a possibility, that Ibogaine's a possibility, um, but that in addition, there are these companies creating new molecules, right? I mean, creating variants on each of these drugs that they hope will have more upside and less downside. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are basing this on the, you know, the odd few dozen, you know, classical psychedelics. I mean, it's very interesting. Some companies are viewing it through the perspective that we can make these better because it's the right thing to do. Other companies are viewing if we can make these not necessarily better, but different so that we can, you know, turn more patients uh, through the door every day. Um, there's definitely a trend to, you know, for me at least, who's been, you know, a long time psychonaut and have, you know, played in a lot of, um, a a lot of different intersections of this space. Um, I've always appreciated the catharsis of, you know, an actual therapeutic trip. And there's a lot of narratives right now that are like the hallucination, the trip confronting yourself is a side effect. And let's eliminate that altogether, presuming that we could have the same effect simply by um, creating the same levels of neuroplasticity and brain chemistry that will, quote unquote, solve that indication. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess also creating compounds where you don't get nauseous or they they last less time or things like that, right? Certainly in the fungi world, I mean, we've looked at, I mean, mushrooms are in its its, its own universe. They're so amazing in general, but you could find a strain uh, of psilocybe and depending on how you cultivate it, eliminate the, the nausea uh, from the whole effect, which has been there, you know, previously or, or commonly. And the same thing obviously can be done at the synthetic level, depending on what molecules you're looking at. So, you know, to each his own on the on the side effect or uh, creating something new that's, that's better or um, faster or cheaper. Mm-hmm. And when you look at all the potential mental health conditions that are out there, what are some of the other ones? Yeah, the, the answer is limited by the human condition. <laughs> but, you know, the next top 10, like we're looking at a lot of invested in companies focusing on traumatic brain injury, uh, as an example. Um, any range of eating disorders, of which there's, you know, hundreds, and there's nuances in each of those hundreds that are different. Um, obviously, anything in, in depression from treatment resistant to MDD to, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety disorder, which, you know, I look at those indications and they're very nuanced and very complex. But if I look at, you know, a DSM manual, like so many of those, at least in the, um, 
uh, generalized anything anxiety disorder is like, oh my God, that was my last 24 hours. Oh my God, wait, that's been mm -hmm. my last 10 years. It's so pervasive. So, you know, it was a bit tongue in cheek. The, the amount of indications are only limited by the human condition, at least where we're at right now as a species. But uh, there's a lot out there. Well, so, so some of the money has got to be made by patterning these new molecules, right? And I've heard Compass, you know, which is now the biggest in the companies right now, um, taking some real flack for being overly aggressive in trying to claim patents on things that they should not rightfully be trying to patent and own. And, you know, their response is, hey, that's just the way people operate in the patent world. But people in the site else world are saying we're trying to do something different here, like cut that shit out. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that I'm think I'm more in the camp of cut that shit out. Um, and there's definitely been responses from leadership of we're going to cut that shit out. Um, time will tell how true that is. I also know, you know, from other industries, from tech, from education, like patents are the path. It's it's how the system works, and it gets really hard too. Like, like. What are we trying to do? Are we trying to heal people and create greater patient outcomes? And the answer, I think, is yes to all that. But then the bigger question comes, is the system broken? Or is there a way to fix the underlying system? By the system, you mean patents? Or you mean the broader you know, nature of capitalism and capital markets? Patents, uh, the US healthcare system, capitalism in general, right? Uh -huh. It's like we know it's not the best. And I'm not uh, necessarily resolving to say, well, it's what we have. Because uh, we're always evolving, we're always iterating in civilization, and certainly democracies or governments or laws and rules. But uh, I've definitely heard and been disappointed that I didn't have a greater solution when somebody's like, there's a better way to do this. Like, why would you invest mm -hmm. in a company that's trying to patent molecules? And I'm like, well, if they're new molecules, it should be, because that's a system and it drives innovation and it protects you know, the people who are, in some cases, working years and years and years on something molecular that they think is unique, um, how else will they be protected if not by a patent? I see. Okay, so we're getting in the weeds here. So, Simi, at this point, I just got to drop back because I, I, I hope our audience is fully engaged here. But, uh, you know, when you and I met, you know, you told me a little of your past and then I have listened to you speak in, in other places. And so, you know, my, I mean, just hearing you, I mean, my understanding is you grew up in Chicago, but at the front end, when you were a little kid, you were following your Peace Corps volunteer parents around the world. <laughs> right. And in your last years of high school, you know, you were in Ghana in mm -hmm. West Africa. And then you spent a little time at the Maharishi University or whatever. Um, <laughs> but meanwhile, t you know, tell me in the midst of all this where you're, you know, you also mentioned having read the classic book, Robert Masters and Gene Houston's The Varieties of Psychedelic Experience. So, so I mean, wh when, do, when do you start doing these psychedelics? Are you like a precocious 13-year-old doing them or you wait till you're in college or? Yeah, I was, I was really, uh, although I've, I've never been accused of being precocious, but I guess that is the best word. God, it must have been like shortly after my bar mitzvah. And I didn't get this feeling of like, now I'm a man, like this rite of passage. And I'm like, what else is there? And I remember ruffling uh, through boxes in our basement in Rogers Park, Chicago. Um, and I found two books in my dad's collection. One was uh, Ram Dass's The Only Dance There Is. 
And the other one was uh, The Dyadic Cyclone by John C. Lilly. So I must have been, you know, um, 13 and a half-ish. And I read them and I was like, what the hell is this? You know, the rabbi never told me any of this stuff. <laughs> um, and that kind of began the journey of just trying to read as much as possible. And then around 15, 16... Uh, I had the great fortune of meeting of meeting Robert Masters and Gene Houston. They had become really dear friends with my best friend in the world. He passed away a while ago. And yeah, that was the beginning of, oh, there's actually psychedelic therapeutic protocols, and you guys are playing with LSD in the psyche. So yeah, in my teen years, it was, um, you know, pretty full on, Um yeah, it's funny. I found a uh, – I was up at my mom's in Michigan a few months ago, and she said, uh, uh, hey, Sim, my, uh, you know, there's, there was some water damage in the basement. And go check out and, and see, see what happened. And I came across the book uh, and the journal uh, from that time in history. So I was able to, like, flip through hundreds of pages of quote-unquote experiments I was doing, um, you know, following uh, uh, Bob and Jean's book and other books I had accumulated at that time um, uh, with psychedelics. The other thing I found was a hard drive with a bunch of Bitcoins that me and my <laughs> older brother had and forgot about when oh. we were buying Bitcoins for under a buck to buy other things. Oh, lucky you. So it was a pleasant surprise. <laughs> it was a very pleasant surprise. <laughs> Did any one experience really stand out during these years that had some transformative uh, impact or insight? Uh, no, it's like they've all kind of conflated generally in, you know, the teen years and the, and the you know, the 20s was a, a lot of ceremony. I spent a lot of time in the Amazon. I spent a lot of time in, you know, wherever there was a forest culture or a culture that had mm -hmm. medicine. Um and then, you know, personally just, you know, tried everything. Um, so there's no one great experience or one one transformative experience. It's kind of like there were hundreds and they all had meaning in their own way. And I'm still working through it. Um, and I'm still petrified each time I do a substance, even after all these years. But, you know, also going back to your younger years, I mean, I know you were getting involved in tech, but as is true of many people who maybe, not I don't know about many, but at least some of the people involved in psychedelics and people involved in tech, many of them cut their teeth on entrepreneurship by doing things like selling weed or other drugs. Was that your story as well, Simeon? Uh, yes, it was. Um, I was never, you know, a drug dealer, but I always helped facilitate. No, I guess I was, you know, I was selling like mm -hmm. dime bags and I always liked, you know, cannabis and I always liked, you know, other molecules. It was never a full time thing. It was just like I had the ability to source and I had the ability to share. And sometimes I'd make some money on that. So, yeah, I guess technically mm -hmm. in those early, early, early years, um, it's funny, though, because um, uh, a family member, maybe a year ago, he's like, I read this thing in the the paper. It's just this ecstasy and, and helping vets. And I go, yeah. And he's like, is that what you do? And I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing. And he's like, ah, I always thought you were just a drug dealer. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> now you're legit in the eyes of the family, Simeon. Yes, huh? yes. 
Yes, indeed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, let me ask you also, I remember you said when we first met this past summer, you said, you know, Ethan, you and I met before, and I think it was at one of the early MAPS conferences in San Jose in, I think, 2010. Yeah. And then, I don't know, you were, you were, you, did you have some table? Were you selling something back then? And, and was there something you had told me about running like a psychedelic arts gallery in Venice Beach? Yeah. Or, I mean, how, how far back do you go with this psychedelics thing? Yeah. I mean, at least on that, that juncture, I had opened the world's first psychedelic art gallery and medical marijuana dispensary in 2008. Simeon, what were you doing with a psychedelic art gallery? <laughs> Yeah, that was a, um, I've always kind of liked new, new things. So I had exited a company um, in Shanghai, I was living in Shanghai for seven years. And I was like, what's next? And I was kind of looking at California and my partners at the time were like, hey, man, there's this green rush. And I'm like, well, I like, I like, that's a new business. That's a new area. And I like cannabis. And um, I also really like art. Let's kind of conflate the two. Um, and yeah, so we opened the world's first psychedelic art gallery and medical marijuana dispensary. We hosted, God, I think we curated like a dozen shows. Uh, we were able to drive a lot of money to all the nonprofits and psychedelics. I mean, people would come in and cry. Like they would walk into the, the gallery and they'd see the art and then they'd walk into the dispensary side, uh, before they got to the backyard, the garden of Whedon. And, They'd be like, I never thought this would happen in my lifetime. Um, I mean, little did they know we kind of uh, – it was a sketchy time um, in cannabis back then. From the the Fed side, there were a lot of raids happening. There was a lot of uncertainty. Um, a fellow a dispensary down the way uh, was raided. They uh, killed his dogs. They shot his dogs. It was just like – it was just one of those things. It's like, well, maybe the world isn't ready for this. It came to an end. Uh, basically, I remember bringing everyone around a table, uh, the staff, my partners, and asking from a show of hands, who wants to go to jail? And nobody raised their hand. So uh, basically, uh, you know, shifted to delivery because at that time under Prop 215, having a cannabis dispensary was sketchy. But so many people over those years, you know, if they're not in jail – um, are becoming public company CEOs, joining scientific advisory boards. There's just been a, a huge shift. So I really cherish those years then because uh, it taught us so much. And also, you know, we got to create this space that allowed people to talk openly about this. Yeah. It just felt like a very different time. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot now about the lessons and similarities and differences between the way that marijuana legalization and the commercialization has evolved and how it's happening in psychedelics as well. And, you know, you pointed out before that, you know, obviously, to some extent, when you see these decrim initiatives and legislation passing in places, you know, first Denver, then Oakland, more recently Detroit, the statewide one in Oregon, these becoming models for elsewhere, they're sort of following the model that we pioneered with first medical marijuana and marijuana legalization. And then when you see the growing role of money coming in, albeit in some different ways, and so I'm curious, I mean, first of all, is there a fair bit of overlap or people who have been invested in the marijuana space playing an ever bigger role in the psychedelic space, or is it still fairly separate? And if so, why? Uh, I, I think there's definitely crossover um, from, you know, I refer to them as cannabros, 
Uh, and, you know, there's crypto bros and other bros. It's kind of a generalized archetype. But because of the success on the money side of the cannabis playbook, i.e., you first go public in Canada, then you presume you'll uplist to a senior exchange, NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, et cetera. Cannabro saw that and saw psychedelics and they said, oh, this is going to be the same. Some were good actors, many were not, many were, you know, what you hear is pump and dumps. I think those have, for the most part, all been eliminated because people are seeing that this is more than just the blip of uh, a one-time opportunity, that this is going to be a vibrant, huge industry. So that's one side, and there's definitely that camp, and there's still activity there. On the other side, where it's completely different, is more of a biotech, uh, pharma kind of side to it. FDA trials, being able to be reimbursed by insurance, you know, tons of research. And can we create the drug or can we create the the system that allows us to bill a patient? Um, So you're kind of seeing both and it's shifting from month to month. I'm curious also whether there is synergy or a competition between the growing legal and legally commercialized markets on the one hand and the underground and illicit markets. You know, the first, I think, major medical marijuana company was out of the UK, GW Pharmaceutical. And then fast forward to about 10 years ago. And GW Pharmaceutical is trying to get approval for its medical marijuana medicine, which is a very good thing to treat, you know, a type of uh, epileptic condition in children. Um, But they hire a former deputy drug czar in the Bush administration to lobby against the broader legalization of medical marijuana through the political process. And it's just remarkably offensive. And I even see in the, you know, in the current world, you see people who are involved in the legal medical or, you know, adult use marijuana markets basically pushing to ban uh, home grow of marijuana by individuals or to push for tougher sanctions. I'm definitely starting to see some of the same contentions happen around companies that have psilocybin as a part of their, you know, quote unquote, portfolio of IP that they're developing and watching, you know, not just Oregon, but other states, you know, go, wait a minute, um, will psilocybin be legal at the state level before it gets through an FDA phase three trial. And what does that do for us? Mm -hmm. So it'll be very interesting in the same way you witnessed that with GW and their hiring practices, how companies who have psilocybin in their portfolio, how they're gonna play that. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Chris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. 
you know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you and I first met, we're sitting on your patio, and I don't know if you offered me a joint or not, you know, but in New York City and many other places, you have these marijuana delivery services, and you pull out the menu of what had been a marijuana delivery service, but now it's got six different types of not just, you know, marijuana chocolate bars, but, you know, mushroom chocolate bars, psilocybin chocolate bars, 2CB, MDMA, all sorts of other concoctions that it just seems this extraordinarily booming um, black market in these products, which with which fortunately law enforcement doesn't seem overly concerned, and we're not hearing much in the way of people really getting hurt, although that's a risk. But what's your perception of what's going on with respect to the illicit market and all these products now? Yeah, it's thriving. I mean, not dissimilar to, you know, cannabis is now, you know, legal in the majority of the U.S., and the black market's even bigger. I think as it relates to, you know, just the delivery services in this city, and they're they're in every city, people started to say, we should sell psychedelics too. And, you know, I watched that because, you know, I always keep a keen eye into the the gray and and black markets, right? Because those are strong signals. It's in a lot of ways the zeitgeist, right? So yeah, a lot of these delivery services who were, you know, doing pretty well selling cannabis illegally, because, you know, it wasn't legal in New York, um, said, well, if we're breaking the law anyway, and we can now sell microdosed mushroom caps at 99% margins, and there's demand for it, why wouldn't we? I think there was one I saw that in parentheses, it was for a, a microdosed a psilocybin type uh, product, and they were calling it uh, Upper West Side Xanax. <laughs> I I laughed and it's like it was becoming so pervasive that, you know, the delivery service who was focusing on that area gave it the label. And then I saw it and it's like, well, we were, and I, you know, I said, how did you come up with that? It was like, well, we were thinking Upper West Side divorcees, but then we learned they all take Xanax and now they're taking microdose psilocybin and they're off the the Xanax or other benzos. So we've just kept it Upper West Side Xanax. Uh-huh. So those are really, uh, really big signals. Well, you, you mentioned Oregon before, right? I mean, Oregon, you know, for our listeners, many people will know that Oregon in 2020 uh, passed two ballot initiatives, um, each of them by about 56% margins of victory. One was an all-drug decrim one that basically embraced the Portugal model where you don't put people in jail for simple drug possession of anything. And that one was led by my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, under my successors, together with locals in Oregon. The other one was the Oregon Psychedelics Initiative, which you know really shocked people um, by passing. And now there's a huge investment in making sure this gets implemented correctly. You know, the state of Oregon 
going to set up a whole implementation board and agency. It's not just for medical therapeutic purposes in terms of curing, you know, serious illness or PTSD. It's even for general wellness conditions. So, you know, one can do it without having been diagnosed with any sort of significant mental illness. But I'm curious, with respect to Oregon, what do you see? Are there going to be significant commercial opportunities in Oregon? Is it going to be clinics? How is it going to transform the world? Yeah, yeah. Nobody knows exactly, but there's a lot of money coming into Oregon betting, hedging that one will get a cultivation license. One will get you know the equivalent of a dispensary license or a clinic license. One will get the you know state level no bid contract to train the psychedelic assisted you know therapists or trip sitters or facilitators. The labels are changing, but it's all happening like kind of in the next year. Like those quote unquote rules will be established. And what's even more fathoming um, is. When I'm in meetings with other legislators or other state leaders or even other governments, it's funny. It's like I – this isn't verbatim, but like somebody said, Oregon, what? We're a bigger state. When's the deadline? Let's beat them to the punch. And then as we got into it, they realized, no, it's not Cannabis 2.0. I'm guessing most of it as it rolls out um, – in Oregon and, and other states and other uh, other jurisdictions will will have a component of assisted therapy. Um, how exactly that looks, no one knows exactly, but um, it's a very open group. All the leadership, all the different subcommittees. I mean, you could jump on a Zoom anytime and like watch it. You know, this living, breathing uh, revolution in the sense of granting psychedelics to you know constituents or citizens of that state, kind of happen overnight. Um, the other bullet point or the last bullet point, which might kind of upend it all, is this prevalence of microdosing. And will a regulatory body, will the powers that be allow that to happen? And might that be kind of an opening of the floodgates where, yeah, there's a little psychedelic in this, but it's safe and it's subperceptual. And as long as you, you know, you don't take the whole bottle or the whole tab or, you know, now you have this great technology that's able to dose you via a patch or an implant or something else, might that jump ahead of everything else? Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, right, I mean, people talk about, you know, basically the pharmaceutical industry confronting a fundamental challenge because if, in fact, these psychedelics and MDMA uh, turn out to be as efficacious in dealing with all forms of mental illness as the promise suggests, it means that people who have been taking daily antidepressants, anti daily anti-anxiety drugs, daily this and that, for which, you know, insurance companies are paying billions of dollars and pharmaceutical companies are making billions or tens of billions of dollars, now people are going to be getting better sometimes by using a substance just once or five or 10 or 20 times in a therapeutic context, which means that the amount of money that can be made from that, these are not repeat drugs, essentially. So the question becomes, I mean, first of all, are, are these new molecules are going to be able to charge a fortune for these things? You know, B, is the microdose thing going to be the one that opens up where, you know, these things become widely consumed products and, and that's where going to be the big money? Or is the truly big money going to be about providing the clinics and the therapists and the standard certification and the support services and the retreats. Five, 10 years from now, you will see everything you mentioned have a role. 
Um, if someone you know cures themselves or at least lessens whatever their indication is, there could always be uh, a continuation of whatever the the molecule is, either sub or quarterly or annually. But you know, humanity likes to have you know a single experience that makes them feel good, but then you know, kind of support along the way. As far as clinics retreats. Uh, we're not doing any of those right now from the fund. Not that we don't believe in them or think there's of great value there, but there will be an interesting, you know, I'm already starting to see it in some ketamine roll-ups where once these drugs, which is where it's all starting from, are legal um, and they've gone through their trials and they're reimbursable, will there be the need for clinics outside of a hospital? Um, and that's where your last question about psychotherapy is a really important one because the presumption right now is, uh, at least the way the laws are being written, is including the psychedelic assisted therapy. So I think that component is still going to stay there and that will afford the continual scaling of, you know, these retreats and these clinics. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or just created a hundred more questions. No, I mean, you, you sort of did. And yes, and you did create a hundred more. But, you know, Anthea, which like MAPS, is trying to figure out as quickly as possible how to get the big insurance companies and, and public health insurance to cover psychedelic-assisted therapy, I think, in the way that some of the ketamine treatment is now being covered. And so obviously that seems pivotal because that's a potential source of billions and billions of dollars coming in to pay for all sorts of you know, psychedelic-related stuff. Do you have any insights about how likely and how fast that is to happen? Yeah, it's definitely a matter of, of when, not if. Um, I mean, it's already happening with ketamine, right? You know, even when I had my dispensary, I figured out how to code things to reimburse some of my patients under Prop 215, almost complete reimbursability. So I do think it's a matter of, of when, not if for that around psychedelics, because you know, at least in Anthea, who you had named, who's an amazing organization, they're doing it very smart, very tactfully. And as these drugs come into market, you know, they'll be the ones who have set up the right infrastructure and have played by the right rules and have really listened. Hmm. You know, even mentioning ketamine right here, you know, one of the speakers at the Horizons conference who I thought gave a great talk was one of the leading ketamine therapists, uh, Dr. Gita Vade. And part of her speech was this pointing out that some people think ketamine is just going to be a placeholder, that it's not the real psychedelic um, once all these other types of psilocybin and MDMA, et cetera, stuff submerge. And she says, no, that's not going to be the case. And so I'm curious, I mean, do you agree with her? Is ketamine just going to keep growing, notwithstanding what happens on the MDMA and psilocybin and other fronts? And does it provide a model for the way these other things are going to evolve? Uh, on the latter question, it absolutely provides a model because it's already happening, right? I mean, right now, if you go to a ketamine clinic, not the majority, but several, the ones I've worked with, are able to fully reimburse. And, you know, personally, a few years ago, I got Lyme disease and, you know, basically was in bed for a year, just totally knocked out. Then I experienced apathy. And apathy is the first time, like, I would wake up and I would not care about anything. I was like, I remember waking up one day and going like, God, I wish I cared enough even to commit suicide. It was like nothing mattered, right? It, horrible. And it was um, coming up on a holiday. So I called the, you know, the doctor, um, who's also my GP that I helped set up some of the first ketamine clinics. 
And I'm like, you know, I'll be in town. You want to, you know, grab a pint or let's meet up. And he's like, absolutely. And he's like, how's your, how's your Lyme? And I'm like, honestly, I got this, this apathy thing. Um, he's like, all right, well, I'm booking you for a Monday, Wednesday, Friday session over the holidays. Uh, offices are closed, but, you know, I'm just going to do you full IV. And that next Saturday, the apathy was completely gone. I was blown away having, you know, explored ketamine for other things and certainly having spent time, you know, in the club world, was pretty familiar with the effects of it. Um, I just had never treated it for an indication I had. It, it was magical. And I don't know, like I didn't try MDMA. I didn't try psilocybin. I didn't try anything else. It was just a doctor who said, listen, I think this could work for you. And I'm like, all right. Well, worst case is I'll get to hang out in the K-hole for three days this Thanksgiving week. Um, so, yeah, I don't think – I think every molecule has its place based on the indication and then based on, you know, the other and huge trend, which I don't think we've talked about, which is, you know, precision medicine and just the fact that we're getting really close to being able to say, okay, this is your thing based on this algorithm or this machine learning algorithm, this is the drug you need and this is the therapy you need. So that's going to be pretty revolutionary in the next few years as well, which will basically ameliorate this whole is one better than the other. Well, one might be better than the other based on who you are as a human being, your genetic profile, your how your brain talks to your gut, the whole set setting and matrix but uh, I don't think these others are going to replace ketamine uh, or vice versa. But let me take you where you were going right there, which is looking at the future, and you said this earlier on, you know, it's not just going to be about psychedelics and mental health. It's going to be about psychedelics and other types of health and looking at the component elements of the molecules within psychedelics. And so I'm curious, I mean, and, and when you're talking about these other things, about greater specificity in, in targeting of disease, what's the relationship between you know, this rapid evolution with psychedelics and uh, these broader areas of medical care, the non-mental illness conditions. There's so much anecdotal information. There's a, a few companies working on it right now um, that are preclinical. Um, well, that's not true. Not all are preclinical, but there's a lot that are preclinical who are not focusing on the narrative of mental health. They're focusing on inflammation. They're focusing on brain degenerative disorders. They're focusing on um, general health. And that's going to be a big narrative as we're able to test that these molecules also help with CNS disorders, um, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. It just doesn't have the same prominence as quote unquote mental health has because, you know, Again, my argument that it's the human condition. Um, everybody is dealing with some some level, some severe, uh, some barely even noticeable, but could be optimized mental health issue. So it's mid-December, December 15th, and I was just checking out some of these biggest companies and looking at their stock prices. And just this week, some of the biggest ones, I think Atai, which is like the 800-pound gorilla of psychedelic investment funds, and Compass that we were talking about, and I think a few others, like the, their stock price just dive-bombed this week. Uh, you know, what was that about? Is it just a blip? Are we going to keep seeing these kind of things? Or what's your take on it? I think today was a combination of... You know, today was a significant day, like you had mentioned, a tie. 
you know, it was very interesting that the first, you know, press release was about founders signing a voluntary uh, a memo saying they would stay in lockup another 24 months. Just explain stay in lockup to our audience. Yeah, lockup is, you know, in so many of these companies, the ones you're seeing in public markets, they were in most cases, almost unanimously, private companies. And when you invest in a private company, because um, you're early, you are locked up. Like even if the company goes public, you can't sell your shares. Um, and that has a lot to do with compliance and SEC and other regulatory bodies. And that's almost always true of the founders, right? Or anyone who's a director. You're, they cannot sell their shares until a certain lockup period expires. And this isn't just psychedelics. This is any industry, but, you know, there's a lot of retail investors. There's a lot of institutional investors who are like, well, does the management believe in this company? And I think that was the ovation that came out of a tie this morning that they do and they're going to hold for another two years and not sell a single share in theory. I mean, there's you could definitely deconstruct the memo and see that there's ways to get out of that. But um, that was the narrative they led with. Now, why it dipped 40% in value, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that a lot of lockups expired today. And a lot of people wanted to take their gains or not take more losses. And that happens in every industry and anything that's public from time to time. So I do think this is a blip. It's also hard to argue that it's something other than that mm -hmm. because how much data do we have if we call it you know psychedelic public markets we have what a couple years of it you're going to look to cns you're going to look at biotech to try to correlate it but it's still too early to really qualify if this is like the future just because today was a, a sell-off day for for some on the flip side i could show you you know uh four to 50, 17 other stocks that all rose by 10 to 20 percent in psychedelics did you buy the dip? I don't do, <laughs> I don't really have the bandwidth to day trade, I wish. Um, I mean, we definitely watch it for sentiment, but we're focused on private companies. Mm -hmm. um, we're usually like seed to A, so often, you know, well before there's a, a liquidity event, which is often, okay, hey, it's liquid, there's money, it's it's now it's public and it's on the NASDAQ, that kind of narrative. Yeah. Um, but we don't focus on, on public companies uh, in the fund and just way too busy just talking to founders and going through decks and helping strategize to, uh, to be a day trader. But if I did... Oh, today would have been the day to do it. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, I, I, I was listening to uh, uh, your colleague, uh, Lindsay uh, Hoover, being asked, you know, how do you mm. figure out what to invest in? And she said, well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, with real estate, it's location, location, location. And when you're investing in startups, it's the team, the team, the team. Is there more to say beyond that about when you're trying to make your choices and who you're going to put money on? Uh, no, she, Lindsay really summed it up clearly. Obviously more nuanced, but, you know, you bet on the jockey and not the horse and there's, you know, a million business metaphors to it. But yeah, we always start with the team. Sometimes we'll see some amazing IP or an amazing novel novelty and a go-to-market strategy that doesn't have the team yet. Um, so we'll do some matchmaking. Mm -hmm. But we always like to start with the people and the humans who, you know, we're entrusting, you know, our limited partners' money 
to make them a return and or we're entrusting them to do the right thing. And that's that's never going to be an algorithm quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in a year we'll, we'll dow it all out. But uh, yeah, team is – you know, it's the people. That's still the world we live in. So we always start with the team. Yeah, you know, I, I, Simeon, I saw you quote, I don't know if you were quoting somebody else or making this up yourself, where you said something like, we're in the business of medicalizing the mystical. Um, and I guess that's, as we've made clear, that's not all of it. <laughs> well, listen, Simeon, I'm grateful to Leonard Picard for introducing us. And it's a pleasure getting to know you. I look forward to many more and also to the great success of your JLS fund. So thank you ever so much for joining me and our psychoactive listeners today. My absolute pleasure, Ethan. Thank you as well. Have a great rest of your night. Join me next week when I speak with Kirsten Smith, a researcher at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, who's been studying Kratom, the fascinating drug out of Southeast Asia, which millions of Americans are now using to deal with drug dependencies, pain, or simply to improve their mood. You know, if I didn't think Kratom was going to be relevant, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I mean relevant on many different levels, both Kratom products proliferating in real-world settings, therapeutics, such that there's like a medicinal Kratom situation going on, similar to cannabis. Again, you know, it's not even my gut. If I thought it was not helping people, I would be working on something else. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.